0: to politics your daily dose of debate breaking news and uncensored views this is the Michael Medved show
1: and another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth where a big new movie release this week and uh, it's going to be available for streaming today tonight uh, on Peacock Network And uh, I'm not necessarily recommending this movie, we'll get to a review later on, but it asks one of the most profound questions that I think has bothered many, many uh, Americans, particularly male Americans, which is, if uh, Jennifer Lopez picked you out of a crowd and said she wanted to marry you, and she didn't know you at all, but she wanted to marry you, would you do it? I won't take phone calls on this, no, <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, um, in any event, that's the uh, basically the plot of Marry Me, and the uh, lucky guy, or is he lucky, is uh, played by Owen Wilson. We will get to re- uh, reviewing that film later on, and later on this hour, we're going to be speaking about an incredibly powerful and disturbing uh, new new book that that may change your thinking very fundamentally on the basis of racism and the association between survival of the fittest mentality and fascism racism exploitation and cruelty uh, of all kinds. What is that? Uh, survival of the fittest mentality. That is the basic idea, of course, behind Darwinism. We will get to the uh, title of that book. Is a Darwinian racism, and uh, we'll get to that later this very hour. One 1776 is our phone number, and uh, the the piece that we were talking about. That uh, actually talks about how the Democrats have to shape up and they are on their way to losing an election and losing an election by crushing, crushing margins, concludes with the recommendations of the author about what Biden can and must do about it. And for a uh, a piece that lays out the case against Biden so well, this formula for how he can save himself is pathetic because it doesn't amount to anything. They talk about one of the reasons Biden has been collapsing in the polls is because a lot of the giveaway money that had been authorized initially to deal with the pandemic and some of the hardships of the pandemic it had been authorized initially under the Trump administration. It has been continued and doubled down in terms of the Biden administration, and now they're trying to take it away, and it's rough for people. The, um, Aida Chavez points out that uh, as a result of the administration's back-to-back failures, Biden's support is crumbling among all Americans, including some of the most crucial groups in his base, black and Latino voters and young people. Some party leaders, like House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, number two Democrat in the chamber, are still optimistic despite Biden's approval ratings, I think we're going to hold the majority in the fall. Want to bet? Hoyer told reporters, I know that's contrary to what some people think. It's contrary to what everybody thinks. Holding the majority will be very, very difficult for them in the House of Representatives in particular. And uh, Democrats, Hoyer added, will have a very solid agenda to run on. And that comes at a time when the child tax credit that had been provided uh, by the government, and again, when you put this in in personal terms, like the cost of inflation just so far, just so far, we are up now to a cost of uh, $278 that you're spending extra just to... Take care of your family. $278 a month. So we're talking about more than $3,000 a year. That's a, a very real difference for people. And uh, right now, 60 million children have been receiving up till January 15th, that's when it stopped, these monthly per child payments, helping them stay ahead of inflation by lowering the cost of food rent utilities and childcare so parents can work. Okay, uh, this is by turning what would be normally a tax obligation including payroll taxes and making it a tax credit. It's basically a giveaway. But uh, as one example a working single parent with three kids who owed say $5,000 in federal taxes in 2021 qualified for annual federal tax credits of $3,000 per child or $9,000 total, thus wiping out her federal tax burden and sending the remaining $4,000 credit to the family in equal monthly payments of $333 a month. The result of allowing the program to expire is to impose huge tax increases on struggling families like this. So basically what she is saying is you've got to restore the additional child tax credit, no question on how to pay for it. And uh, she says now as inflation hits a 40-year high and COVID-19 cases surge, is a terrible time to effectively hit working families with a major tax increase. Okay, I think that Republicans could agree with that. But uh, then... What what do you do about that looming financial catastrophe of the United States now having to pay out a, a debt of uh, $30 trillion with increased interest? I mean, if anybody out there, and I've certainly have had this experience, I imagine many of you have, you ever held a, an adjustable rate mortgage? And if you have a substantial mortgage, it makes a real difference when those insurance, when those interest rates go up. And that is uh, directly, directly what's going on. James Carville, who is one of the uh, clearly smartest of the Democratic political advisors and gurus, had this to say about, uh, in an interview with CNN, about the way forward for the increasingly desperate Democrats. Clip 11.
2: People want an election about their lives. They don't want an election about a former president. They don't want an election about any of this. And if you show in substantial policies that improve people's lives and you run on that like we did in 2018, you will be successful. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to Donald Trump, but the one six committee, but Manhattan D.A., the Fulton County D.A., the archives. I have no idea. But what you can do is do the best you can to talk about how you prove an American life and win elections. You know, Franklin Roosevelt said he went from Dr. New Deal to Dr. Win the war. Well, I want to be Dr. Win the
1: election. (laughs) That's actually a very good line. And then he went on to uh, try to defend the Democrats with a fairly dubious claim. This is clip 10. Crime's an interesting subject. So what do Democrats need to do? In addressing crime, or how do they need to be talking about crime heading into
0: the midterms?
2: They need to get it. They're starting to do that. The president's in, in increasing funding for police. All right? There are all kinds of things. There was Operation Ceasefire that they did out in Oakland that was very, very successful. You know, we, we, can, do, we can do things. In we, 1994, we passed the crime bill. The crime went down staggeringly between '94. In 2020, the Democrats have a much better record on, on fighting crime than the Republicans do. So you had the biggest spike in crime in the third year of a Republican presidency. We need to remind people of that. And that there's good policies we can put in place.
1: Okay, uh, look, the thing about that 1994 crime bill, uh, you know who sponsored that crime bill? Joe Biden. He was one of the co-sponsors, one of the people who drafted it. But now he's disowned it. He said it was a terrible mistake because it did increase the number of people in prison. And guess what? The best way to prevent crime is arresting criminals and putting them away and putting them away for substantial terms. And there's this awful story, and and I mentioned it before, we will get to it, but it, it shows you how crazy we have gotten in terms of not focusing on career violent criminals. We will get to that and more in This Greatest Nation on The Michael Medved Show. And on The Michael Medved Show, uh, James Carville bringing up that uh, idea that the Democrats are better on crime because they got a a fine crime bill passed in 1994. How did that happen? Okay, think about 1994. 1994, they were facing a tremendous loss in Congress because Bill Clinton was floundering and foundering and flailing and ailing and uh, all those uh, rhyming problems that he had. And uh, his approval rating was down there not quite as bad as Biden is now, but it was in that range. And uh, one of the things that happened was they were about to elect a Congress where the Republicans gained 55 seats in the House. Ten, Ten times as many seats as they need this time to take control of the House. And one of the issues they were facing problems with was the issue of crime. So... The Crime Bill of 1994, which of course Bill Clinton signed and was very proud to sign and Joe Biden was one of its biggest promoters, was trying to show that, yes, we're serious about crime. We look at the rapidly rising crime, and they had that situation back in the late 80s, early 90s. And we need to do something about it, so basically... Uh, The Crime Bill of 94 gave more funds to police resources, which we desperately need today. And it also um, put away career criminals. And right now, there's no indication at all that the Biden administration is willing to do a similar thing. And it may have to wait, and it won't have to wait that long until... The Republicans do take over at least the House and probably both the House and the Senate. When a Republican Congress can help to moderate a Democratic president, especially one with delusions of transformational grandeur, like Joe Biden, you can actually get things done in a number of areas. And one of them is crime. I mentioned this one story. It's a brief story, but it's it's fairly... Even the way that it's told in the Seattle Times, I think, gives a a real perspective. It uh, says Karen Dalton of Seattle was protecting her children when she was caught, shot, and killed after a gunman opened fire last week inside a Greyhound bus in Northern California. She was traveling with two of her children. The Butte County Sheriff's Office said that Dalton, who was 43 years old, was among five people who were struck uh, by gunfire in the February 2nd shooting. The victims included Dalton's 11-year-old daughter, her family said, but the daughter survived. The man suspected in the shootings was named Asadi Elijah Coleman, 21 years old. He had a partial arraignment Wednesday, that's two days ago, Uh, Butte County District Attorney Michael Ramsey said. uh, The Coleman was charged with one count of murder and four counts of attempted murder, court records show. Each count carries a special enhancement for using uh, a weapon and causing great bodily injury. He also faces two counts without enhancement of being a prohibited Person in possession of a firearm. And what does that mean? It means he had an extensive criminal and mental health record. He now faces 148 years to life in prison if convicted as charged. But this is going to depend on prosecutors in California actually doing their job. And locking, locking this failed life up and getting it away from damaging other innocent people. And uh, when you read about this lady and her children, they seem like very nice people. The shooting occurred around 7.30 p.m. as the Los Angeles-bound Greyhound bus made a rest stop at a gas station and a convenience store in Oroville, about 70 miles north of Sacramento. Uh, Coleman, who was the criminal, the shooter, the murderer, who boarded the bus in Redding, California, had been acting, quote, paranoid and said that one of the passengers was an undercover agent who he had to kill. And uh, he opened fire with a 9mm handgun as passengers were beginning to exit just to go out to the rest stop and apparently the unfortunate uh, Ms. Dalton who was killed didn't get out of the bus in time after arriving on the scene uh, deputies heard from passengers that uh, he the killer was inside a nearby Walmart they went into the Walmart and they found the suspect totally naked and acting erratically, it says here, inside the store and arrested him without further incident. I I think shooting people at random on a bus and then taking all your clothes off and going into a Walmart, um, and that counts as acting erratically. This is unbelievable. The three other victims are um, in various stages of recovery some of them are still hospitalized the uh, dalton's family described her as a stay-at-home mom who was a very outgoing person with a spunky personality her partner said she took a bus on their trip across the country because it was more affordable than booking a flight with two children uh, it's still hard to believe uh she said about the he said about the um, the shooting. It's just a senseless act of violence that's going to make it difficult for the family to have any closure. Okay, what does this have to do with anything? I will tell you what it has to do with is right now there's a big controversy about more debates in Olympia and the state of Washington about i uh, not gun control, but magazine control. They, they want to limit the number of bullets you can have in a magazine that you could purchase to 10. Okay, a- again, how about instead of new regulations, simply the most rigorous possible regulations, this individual was not supposed to have a gun. And if we can't close down the illegal trade in firearms and the idea of firearms falling into the hands of them deeply disturbed like this then really what can the government do? Wouldn't that be the very first thing? Enforce laws we have and uh, and, and, and then also be serious about mental illness it is not normal, it is not acceptable to have dangerous psychos wandering around on their own. There needs to be some kind of commitment process, especially for someone like this. It's 21 years old. Uh, When we come back, we'll be talking about a a dynamite book that uh, talks about the origins of racism intellectually. And uh, we'll get to that coming up on the Medved Show.
0: More of Michael Medved in a moment.
1: And on the Michael Medved show, uh, we've had on the show before, a couple of years ago, Uh, Richard Weikert, who is the author of a number of very important books. He is a professor, Professor Weikert, of history at California State University Stanislaus and uh, that's up in Northern California. And Professor Weikert, I wanted to begin with uh, the book, new book is called Darwinian Racism, how Darwinism influenced Hitler, Nazism, And white nationalism there's something about we're talking about crime a little bit generally on the the show today and one of the things that was stunning reading your book was something a detail I didn't know about a very famous crime the crime was April 20th of 1999 which was Adolf Hitler's birthday the day had been selected for uh, for that purpose to celebrate Hitler's birthday and what they the perpetrators did is two perpetrators named Klebold and Harris uh, murdered, uh, what was it, 19 people at Columbine High School in Colorado. What's so striking about this, aside from the fact that they were both obsessed with the Fuhrer and wanted to honor his memory, quote, by killing people, uh, that uh, Eric Harris was actually wearing uh, a very interesting T-shirt. What did it say? Yeah, his
0: T-shirt said Natural Selection, and if you look at his uh, journals, which I've read, uh, he also does, in his journals, talk extensively about Darwinism and social Darwinism and the uh, Darwinian struggle for existence between races and such.
1: And part of the whole theory of Nazism, which obviously had permeated uh, the horrible warped minds of these Two Killers, May They Rot in Hell, uh, which was the idea of survival of the fittest said that you had to show your own strength by uh, liquidating the weak. There's something else in the middle of your book, which I found, again, I didn't know. I think most people don't know this, which is about a Nazi propaganda film called Inheritance. What did that... uh, film show that was made after Hitler came to power?
0: Yeah, in fact, they, the the Nazis made a number of uh, films, propaganda films, and that was one of them that you mentioned there. Another one was called All Life is Struggle. And all of these uh, propaganda films put out by the Racial Policy Office were trying to justify their eugenics program, which was a program to try to Breed uh, better humans, essentially. But they uh, many of them had Darwinian themes. In fact, the one All Life is Struggled started off with, this, uh, with uh, the animals in the struggle for existence, and the whole title suggests that. And also, in, in the Inheritance one, it's trying to show that uh, people inherit uh, biological tendencies, either superior or inferior, uh, and they're then trying to Uh, suggests that we need to try to get rid of the inferior because, after all, they wouldn't survive in the Darwinian struggle for existence anyway.
1: Well, your your book is extremely persuasive on the idea that uh, it's not just uh, Hitler taking these great enlightened viewpoints from Charles Darwin and warping them into sick racism, uh, but uh, that actually the racism is right there in Darwin's life and work. Is Does that survive the fact that uh, Darwin, in fact, was personally opposed to slavery? Can you still indict him with racism?
0: Well, interesting. Look at the 19th century, there are actually quite a number of people who were abolitionists, that is, opposed to slavery, that were intensely racist. Darwin wasn't alone in that respect, uh, but if you read the Darwin's Descent of Man, he very clearly uh, came out supporting a racial hierarchies, that is, that the Europeans were the superior race, and that other races around the world, such as the uh, Native Americans, the Australian Aborigines, black Africans were inferior and pretty much most, almost all historians of science recognize that and admit that. Now, sometimes you'll try to make excuses for them by saying that, well, everyone was a racist back then in the Victorian era, which is not quite true, but but it is true that most people were at that time. But what I find interesting about Darwin's uh, use of racism is, first of all, he used it as evidence for his theory. Because he had to show that uh, different species had variations within them that could then evolve into separate species eventually if they uh, had enough time, so he used races as uh, a, a way of uh, racism, rather as a way of proving his theory, and then he also integrated the idea of the struggle for existence with races. So that he thought that races were locked in a struggle for existence, and he thought that the Europeans were winning that struggle for existence worldwide by uh, colonialism and by exterminating other races around the world. So when he saw the Australian Aborigines uh, being exterminated by the Europeans, he saw that as something that was going to bring about biological progress ultimately.
1: And why is this relevant now? Is there still, uh, do you still find among the white supremacists on the fringe and people who are deeply motivated by racism, the David Dukes of this world, for instance, uh, do they still embrace Darwinian theories?
0: Oh, clearly. Uh, now, again, as you're suggesting, it is a fringe movement. I'm not suggesting this is kind of mainstream in America or anything like that. Uh, but in this fringe movement of white nationalists, or sometimes they call themselves alt right uh, or neo Nazis, uh, they most certainly do still embrace Darwinian evolution. I, in the course of my research for the, uh, the book Darwinian Racism, I looked at the white nationalist websites and publications and such, and they very clearly continue in the same vein. As Hitler did and the Nazis did, uh, in embracing the idea that there's a Darwinian struggle for existence between these unequal races. And of course, they're promoting uh, their own white nationalist race. In fact, let me give you a quotation from uh, Richard Spencer, who uh, got a lot of press several years ago. Haven't heard so much about him lately in the press, but about four or five years ago, he was getting a lot of press with his alt right uh, movement and such. Uh, Spencer published a uh, journal called Radix Journal, an online journal, Uh, and in one of the articles that he wrote there, he said, quote, group differences exist as consequences of evolution by natural selection. And when he says group differences, of course, he's talking about racial differences, differences between different races. And then he also said, quote, the preference for one's own race is a product of our evolutionary history. Uh, quote, quote. So that's the notion of evolutionary psychology, that the notion that we prefer our own race, he thinks, is built into us biologically by the evolutionary process. So okay. these ideas are still circulating out there. Again, they're in a fringe uh, movement. They were in the early 20th century. It was uh, pretty much mainstream science, uh, but uh, today it's uh, more on the fringes.
1: Well, I know that Margaret Sanger, among others, was one of the people who embraced some of the early theories of eugenics. The The book is called Darwinian Racism. One, one quick question here, given the fact that uh, most of the people on planet Earth, most of the human beings on planet Earth are not white how would you reconcile that with the idea of survival of the fittest and natural selection? Isn't nature uh, singling out white people rather than signaling for their continued dominance?
0: Well, uh, during Darwin, basically Darwin thought that the races had evolved differentially because of geographical isolation and such. And, And interestingly, uh, if you if you move into the the Nazis and this is this is not Darwin's idea now that I'm getting into it this in a moment, but when you move into the Nazis and a lot of the racial ideology that was going on at that time, and by the way, this is still being recycled by white nationalists today, they believed that in Northern Europe there had been uh, harsher climatic conditions that had led to what uh, biologists refer to as selective pressure. And the, the Nazis, and again, it's not just the Nazis, it was scientists of their day, were claiming that these climatic conditions had made the Europeans more intelligent, more cooperative, so thus more moral and
1: such. Which, then, which uh, is, of course, the, the whole idea of a master race uh, has Darwinian echoes. Uh, The book, Darwinian Racism, it's posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com. The author, Professor Richard Weikert. Thanks for joining us And a very disturbing and important book. We'll be right back.
0: The Michael Medved Show. michaelmedved.com.
1: And on the Michael Medved show, uh, just concerning that book, uh, Darwinian Racism, uh, the Nazi propaganda film that I mentioned, uh, which is featured in this book, is a film called Inheritance. It was made in 1935. And um, it basically featured a lot of nature footage of animals eating each other to try to emphasize and including. Eating their own species, sometimes eating their young, uh, and it is uh, there's a great deal of brutality in the animal kingdom, and the idea of showing all of that is showing, yeah, it's a tough world. You know, you you got to compete, you got to eat eat the other guys, and there apparently is uh, footage of uh, chimpanzees and others doing violence to one another. Uh, and then gobbling each other up. Uh, well, I, I mean, one of them gobbles, I, I don't think they do it simultaneously. In any event, uh, that brings up a, uh, a claim that was made uh, at a debate at the Oxford Union. And the Oxford Union is a, uh, a, a very time honor. I think it's been around for about 200 years, where students uh, debate various subjects and uh, we had, in, when, I, when I was in college, we had the Yale Political Union, which, by the way, a, a John Kerry uh, at one point was president of the Yale Political Union. That's another story. So at the Oxford Union, they just had a motion to move beyond meat. And they had invited on a um, uh, an eco-feminist theologian, writer... activist who has worked extensively in the fields of domestic violence and animal advocacy and her name is Carol Adams and she spoke on the idea that uh, it's extraordinarily important for society to move beyond meat. Listen.
3: I believe we should move we should beyond all meat. The assumption that the best protein comes from corpses is a racist belief. How do you know the animal would have picked you to feed off their corpse? 21st century animal eating requires our complicity in a new colonialism. These events especially affect girls and young women. Your hamburger comes with a dose of misogyny. Popular culture is flooded with references to sexy cows, sexy pigs, sexy chickens. Sexy fishes who all just want to have fun.
1: Okay, sexy fishes. Are we talking about Finding Nemo or I mean, seriously? Uh, and yeah, and I guess Jaws would be an example. But no, that's back to the survival of the fittest. Um, this is really extraordinary, and, and the idea that eating meat is particularly harmful for women. It comes with a side dose of misogyny. Do you like misogyny with those fries? Oh no, fries are not meat. Would you like uh, misogyny with those chicken nuggets? Actually, some of the vegetarian chicken nuggets made by Morningstar Farms are pretty good, but they're vegetarian, so they're irrelevant here. If someone wants to explain to me why eating meat would be misogynistic, it would be anti-female. I, I don't know of any meat product where uh, you're supposed to eat just the female. Uh, no, I mean, uh, again, there are there are, fowl, I think the uh, roosters get it too. Uh, then, then there is this about masculinity uh, uh, and whiteness which is a part of the problem, listen.
3: Meat eating is also one of the ways gender-based structures of oppression are perpetuated. Masculinity, a construct of the gender binary facing constant destabilization, feels always under threat and eating animals is its protection racket. White supremacists weaponized eating meat, eggs and dairy and the baiting of liberal men as so-called soy boys are all part of the neo-Nazi messaging.
1: Neo-Nazi messaging? Uh, Really? Uh, Again, there's also racism involved, apparently. And is that racism for considering human beings to be different from animals? Or what exactly? Uh, Listen.
3: To say you care about animals is considered a sign of weakness in a world still committed to the gender binary. Meat eaters like anti-abortionists have forgotten that one quality of non-existence is not having awareness about existence. When all else fails, meat eaters assert that animals are not our equals. I heard all your laughter. I know some of these must be new ideas or you think they're fringe or whatever. Our whiteness is part of the problem of meat eating.
1: What? Uh, Our
3: whiteness is part of the problem of meat-eating.
1: Okay, Uh, whiteness and meat-eating do not necessarily uh, go together. Uh, If you look at most cultures, non-white cultures, they do um, pretty well with eating various kinds of meat. In fact, all kinds of meat. In Chinese culture, which is a non-white culture, I think you will agree, uh, they eat everything. I think they eat everything except a wolf's heart. Uh, supposedly, they can make it uh, tasty and do it in Cantonese or Szechuan or whatever they do. Look, this is a, a a subject of some interest to me because, as people probably know, I haven't. Uh, we don't. We don't serve meat at home. And uh, and I haven't. Uh, I mean, I haven't really eaten meat at all uh, for for some years. That's was like twenty. And but that's not because I believe that uh, meat eating is a problem with whiteness or misogyny, or even because I, I know it's ecologically better and easier if you consume plant based food. I just like it better. I feel better about it. And, and, yes, I, I have all kinds of sympathy with people uh, like my daughter and uh, our daughter-in-law who just would prefer not to, to eat a dead animal. <laughs> See, you know, it's, that it seems to me fine. But to make this the cause of everything and to link it with oppression and colonialism, when meat-eating is uh, for some of the cultures that were allegedly victimized by colonialism, in fact, were in fact victimized by colonialism, they had a pretty healthy appetite for uh, for dead flesh. And they did. And again, to with all of the social problems that we have, The idea that trying to teach people these very highfalutin and extraordinarily misleading and warped uh, stories about uh, meat eating and colonialism and misogyny and gender opposition to gender fluidity is bizarre.
3: Your hamburger comes with a dose of misogyny.
1: And don't don't we have enough reasons to feel guilty or troubled. Uh, I'll I'll tell you one. Um, There is a uh, Sarah Palin trial. She's not on trial. She is the plaintiff. It's the New York Times that's on trial. And she gave testimony yesterday that uh, wasn't so well received, apparently. After the uh, jury left for the day, U.S. District Judge Jed Rakoff ruled that he wouldn't allow uh, jurors to consider imposing punitive damages against the New York Times, a decision that could substantially limit the size of any monetary award to Ms. Palin if she wins. She's suing them for defamation and for damage to her reputation, and there's no question her reputation has been damaged, not because of any of the stories they had about her or her behavior, but uh, allegedly for having contributed uh, through a an ad that she did that was a partisan Republican ad that showed 20 members of Congress, all Democrats who were in the crosshairs, that that's allegedly, according to something that was put into the New York Times, had some connection to the shooting of Gabby Giffords in Arizona, where she was critically injured and I think there were seven other people who were killed. There was no connection. The, uh, the killer, the shooter, Lofner was not even a conservative, and he had never seen that ad. They corrected the error of the New York Times within 24 hours. But Palin says that this did so much damage to her that she's suing now. The uh, case is concluding. It should go to the jury. We should have a verdict soon in this greatest nation on God's green earth.